Look at all y'all showing up. Man, it's crowded in here. The back row Baptist even got company today. Like the back row got another back row. That's how good it's going today. Man. I am uh, really excited about the community group tour tonight. Um, Just the opportunity to fellowship and hang out with a lot of people in our uh, faith community. Again, if you are kind of on the GER side of 85, uh, we've got an event at the Duncan Event Center for you tonight. And then tomorrow, Tiger River. Uh, If you're on the Woodruff side, where my survivor's at, you made it another week off the mean streets of Woodruff. If you're a sugar titter, I don't... You don't get in trouble for that around here. Like if I go to California or to Montana or someplace like that, and I say, if you're a sugar titter, I'm going to die. Like there, you get shot. But here it's just like, yeah, that's, that's where, we, where we live. It's part of where we're from. We've got a gas station and a snowball place. We're moving up in the world. Okay. Um, we're, but again, we're just excited for you to take some time and get to hang out. My name is Russ. If it's your first time here and you're not already offended, welcome. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm the senior pastor here at... Uh, four points and get the honor of opening up God's word with you today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible, we'd love for you to open it up to Matthew 25. It'll also be here on my screen for you to check out with us as we open up God's word. We're in a series of messages called Taboo. There are certain subjects that if we're honest, we'd rather not have God's input or view very clear in our life. It's a lot easier to be ambiguous about things that we want to be ambiguous that maybe the Bible doesn't leave a lot of ambiguity for. And one of those big taboo subjects is the subject of wealth, treasure, and money. How do we steward it? How do we pursue it? How do we go after it? And and I want to take some time to open up God's Word to look at this principle that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, carries straight through as a theme in the Old Testament, into Matthew chapter 25, and I think it has a uh, great call for us as followers of Jesus when it comes to the way uh, that we take the gift of what God has given us in our life and steward it in a way that makes an impact. If you opened up your Bibles, we're going to get to Matthew 25, but if you opened up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, you'll get a story of a God who was in the beginning. Before you can ever get to the beginning, there was a God, and the reason we have a beginning is because God in the beginning decided it was going to begin. And as a result, God began to speak into nothing. And out of nothing, he created everything that could be seen. It was an orderly creation. It was a creation that culminates with God saying, let us make them, us, human beings, in their image. And as a result, we have this beautiful creation where we are invited to taste and see and enjoy and worship and work which was a part of the world before the fall of man. Many believe that the 9 to 5 came after Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve sinned. The thorns and thistles came, but there was work in the garden because work is a part of the imagio Dei, of being image bearers of God. And whenever God put Adam in the garden, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, there was a call, a mandate that he gave humanity that was to be specific to their identity. And it's this, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So the call was that we would steward creation in a way that it would cause it to flourish. Several years ago, just so you know, uh, I've been invited to be in places that throughout my life I've looked at and thought, how did that happen? Uh, Why am I here? Like, this doesn't make sense. I I think they 
just ran out of people that they could invite to the event, so they invited me. Well, Southwestern Theological Seminary wanted me to come and debate um, ethics with their seminary professors and with other pastors from around the country. So they invited 20 people to sit around a table and debate ethics for four days uh, around, you know, what, what do we do with stewarding creation and, and green earth and all this movement and everything that's going on in that? What, what, what do we do when it comes to economics and earning f- money uh, in an ethical way or a God-honoring way? And is there an, a non-God-honoring way that we could earn and spend money? So obviously I was well qualified. Uh, <laughs> At the age of 27, with a bachelor's degree that took five years for me to get and no master's degree to go and sit at this table. I never will forget day one, they went around and everyone was introducing themselves by their credentials. And it was like doctor of this with a doctor of that. And, a, and, you know, and I've done this thing and I led an entire people group in Africa to Jesus. And, and it gets to me and I'm like, hey, my name's Russ. I'm married to, to Morgan. I got a bachelor of arts and I planted a church that has a few hundred people in it. Okay, your, your turn. I mean, I just didn't have any... I didn't have much, you know, like to, to really go off of in it. it but, but what was amazing uh, about that learning experience, about getting to have that conversation, is this really smart guy studied the Green Earth Movement and what was going on in the logging movement up in Washington. I know a lot of you are really encouraged and have wanted to know logging information. And uh, the argument in Washington was that the loggers were terrible for the environment and they were tearing everything down. And as a result of it, creation couldn't flourish. And what we needed to do was just leave it all alone and let it be natural. And if it was just natural, then, then this species of owl that was dying would actually flourish and would come back. Well, what's hilarious about the study is what ended up happening is they discovered that there is a way in which logging actually helped creation thrive. Whenever the loggers would come through, they would take six feet uh, lanes of trees out at a time. And what was happening whenever they were doing this logging uh, this way is the owl population flourished because their wingspan is about five and a half feet. But whenever they stopped logging, the owl species went really down far because I don't know if you discovered this yet, um, but animals can be dumb. And sometimes when they spread their wings out, what was happening is when they were not stewarding the woods, when they were not stewarding the resource, the owl population dropped because they were flying into trees and dying, which meant that the the species wasn't flourishing. What what I want you to understand is this, not getting into the politics of green earth or anything like that. What I want you to understand is this. There is a mandate from Genesis 1 that we would steward creation for the glory of God. Uh, that, that, That means that we would work the ground, that in the working of it, it would be fruitful, and that in it, there would be an act of worship where our work would combine in a way with God's world so that it would give God glory. This is foundational to you and me. You have been created to steward your time, resources, talents, gifts that God has given you in a way that gives an act of worship and glory to God with your life. That's why you're here. Are you tracking with me? So, so we have been called to be fruitful and to multiply. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, we get the midpoint that we look at a lot. It says this, the man says, since you listen to your wife, and some of you are going to read that line and you're like, see, I know I need to come to church because I've been listening to my wife and that's why we've been having so many problems. That, that's not the point here. She was in rebellion. There's, there's, most of you would benefit from listening to your wife. So let's continue to read and not prove text. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life will struggle to scratch a living from it. 
Everyone can hear, you know, Richmond, north of Richmond, start to play in the background when you read this verse, right? Like you, can, you begin to hear like country music songs about the difficulty of living in life that, that come up whenever you begin to read this. Work was meant to be an act of worship to God, and, and it had an ease to it that we don't understand. But at the fall of creation, work became tough. Uh, this is where injustice begins, God created a just world under his authority. We wanted to know what the world was like absent from his authority. As a result, what we've got is a world where you scratch at the ground just trying to get a dollar from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. I'm setting up a theological point before we jump to Matthew 25, and it's simply this. You and I, as image bearers of God, have been created to take all the resources that God has given us and to steward it in a way that gives God glory, honor, and worship, and there's a day coming where that's going to matter. And we can have a conversation today about you getting out of debt, and you managing your money better. But I would submit to you that the biblical conversation that I think God wants to have with most of us about our life is that for many of us, we are not stewarding it with this call from Genesis 1 in mind, and we are not thinking about the fact that we've been promised difficulty and trouble in doing it. But at the end of the day, our mandate is to be a people that steward what God has given us for the day where we stand before God so that we can honor him with what he has done and the gift that he invested to us. Now, there's a warning that comes in Matthew chapter 25, and that's what we're trying to get to. Because in Matthew 25, this warning about not taking this mandate seriously comes up. It's in a section of apocalyptic scripture where Jesus is talking about last things. Uh, The first illustration and parable he teaches about last things is that Jesus is going to come back, and the hour that's used in the parable is at midnight, basically at an unexpected time. In an unexpected hour. And there'll be many who aren't prepared and aren't waiting and aren't looking. And as a result of it, the bridegroom's going to come and they're going to miss out. And they're going to knock on the door and go, but hey, 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 we meant to get around to that stuff. We meant to get around to following you. We meant to get around to serving you. And he's going to say from the inside, I don't even know you. That's in your Bible. Real stuff. Not meant to scare you, but it should be scarier than any M. Night Shyamalan movie you've ever seen. To hear those words from God. There's a lot of incredible stuff in that. The second parable he teaches is what we're going to look at. And it ends with final judgment where Jesus separates the wheat and the tares from each other. The sheep and the goats from each other at the end of Matthew chapter 25. So we're going to pick it up. Matthew 25 verse 14. The second parable about the the end times. About the last things. Again it says this. Again the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them. While he was gone, he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last. Dividing it in proportion to their abilities, he then left and went on his trip. The story opens up with bags of silver being given out by a master to servants And then he leaves and goes away for a period of time. It lays out three points that we need to pay attention to if we're going to follow the story. Number one, everyone has been given something. No one of his servants go without something to work while while he is gone, while the master is gone. In this room, you have been given time. You've been given the opportunity to have a period of time for which you can honor God or dishonor God, serve God or work against the purpose of God. 
in this room, you've been given talent. This is not a Pinocchio speech where I walk around the room and say, you've got talent and you've got talent and my nose begins to grow. You've got potential. No one's seen the Geico commercial? Okay, my, my point is, this is not a speech to try and talk you up, but you've been, as image bearers of God, given specific gifts. If you're a follower of God, the scriptures in the New Testament teach that you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit came into you, he gave you specific spiritual gifts for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ so that we could collectively give a better and more whole witness to the community that are around us. So you, in this room, have been given time from God to serve God or rebel against God. You have been given talent, gifts that God has given you, natural abilities and spiritual gifts that are meant to be deployed for the glory of his name, renowned, and uh, uh, fame in the earth. You've been given resource. And for some of you, you've been given a lot of resource. In fact, collectively, when it comes to this planet, you've been given more resource than most on the planet to steward in a way that gives God glory. You've been given a lot. The question is, is what are you doing with the lot that you've been given? First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, 7 speaks of the fact that you, if you're in Christ, have been given spiritual gifts. Psalm 139 verse 16 speaks of the fact that you've been given a number of days. John 19, 11 speaks of the fact that you've been given a measure of authority. The question is, what are you doing with the authority that you've been given? Everyone has been given something, number one. That's the first thing I want you to see. The master goes away, he gives his servants something. You've got something. You may not like your something. You may be complaining about your something. You may think that your something's insufficient. You may think that your something's inadequate. You may not like the fact that your something doesn't seem as significant as to your neighbor's something. But you got something, number one. Number two, every something belongs to God. The text says that he entrusted to them his resources while he was going away on a long journey. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means there's nothing that God doesn't rightly look at and say, mine. Everything belongs to God. We are, according to the Bible's perspective, owners of nothing but stewards of everything. Your talent is not for your platform. Your talent is a means for worshiping and drawing attention to God. When you do this, you're considered weird, you're considered like, like out, out there, like, like there's a guy named Tim Tebow that was really talented at football, the NFL hated him. You know why? Because he didn't use his talent for his platform, he used the gifts that God gave him as a means to give glory and worship to God, and as a result of it, the world didn't like him a lot. So, so what you've been given is a means for God to be, to be worshipped, to be honored. Your, your something, your time, your gifts, your natural abilities, your authority, your influence, that something has been given to you so that you can worship God with it. It, it belongs to God. He rightly looks at it and says, mine. And you can keep it for yourself now. But what Matthew 25 is going to end with is the day where God comes back and says, okay, you borrowed what was mine. I'm taking it back now. Everything belongs to God. Everyone's been given something. Number three, the task of the servant is stewardship for the master. The task of the servant with what you've been given is stewardship for the master. So we are to save on purpose and invest on purpose and spend on purpose. And that purpose cannot be just simply my benefit, my comfort, my retirement, my security, and my gain. We are a people that have a greater vision for what we are called to this earth to do than just being about ourselves. The call that God has on your life is too big for it just to be about you. 
The call that God has on your life is too big for it just to be about your safety, your security, your desires, your needs. God has something so much bigger for you, and he has given you time and resource to do something so much greater than just make yourself and your few comfortable around you. Everything belongs to God. We manage it. This is way bigger than money. Everything belongs to God. We manage it. Your time belongs to God. Yeah, you may give him a few hours on a Sunday, but it doesn't mean that the rest of it doesn't belong to him. It all is his. Does this make sense? Your resource, all is his. It all belongs to him. Our core values that we, li- that we live open-handed here at this church. If we want to be the kind of people that reach the least, the lost, and the lonely, we're going to be open-handed with more than just our money. Because sometimes to be a good neighbor, you've got to give a lot of time. See, many of us aren't willing to be open-handed with our money. Therefore, we're very closed-handed with more precious resources that we aren't even identifying correctly like time. Not available to our neighbor. We can't be a good friend. Think about Jesus' uh, story where the paralytic is carried to him. And his friends rip the roof off the building just to get him to him. Now, I want you to think about this. They have chosen to be friends with this guy for, we don't know, an unspecified amount of time. But in order to be a good friend, think about how much more time it took to be that guy's friend. They had to go slower. They had to be more prepared in their planning. It, it took more to be a good friend. And my point is, you and I have been given this resource of time that is like a vapor that is here today and it's gone tomorrow that's, that's quick. It, it goes quick. And we've been called to be intentional with that time so that we can be relational with those that God has put around us for his kingdom and for his glory. It's not just giving God your open-handed attention with your resource financially. It's being open-handed with things like time. Now, now in the text, we're told that after he leaves, he gives them each a bag of silver, is what it says in the NLT. But in the ESV, it'll say talent. Uh, The attempt of the NLT is to explain to you the value of what's being given to each person. Because if you just read five talents two talents and one talent, you might think, well, it seems like an insignificant amount that has been given to them. However, a talent as a measurement of wealth was around 20 years wages in Jesus' time. So to get one talent was to get a 20-year advance on your work payment. To get two is 40. To get five is a lifetime's advance payment plus in advance of what God's given you as far as resource goes. So one talent equaled around 6,000 denarii. A soldier's wage in general was around one denarii. Uh, In totality, that's around 20 years income. I did some new math. The average American income of the American household today is $70,784. Some of y'all are probably going, where's that? I'm I'm below average. But by those math statistics, if you were given one talent, you'd be given $1,415,680. Think you could get something done with that? If you were given two talents, it would be $2,831,360 that you're being left with to steward for God's kingdom. If it were five talents, just in case you want to know the math so you don't have to do it in your head, any beautiful mind people out there, It would be $7,078,400. The principle is you had nothing coming into this world. You take nothing with you out of this world. And 
as you live on this planet, God has richly blessed you with something to steward for him. Everything we have belongs to God. And I would suggest to you that for many of us in this room, we are underestimating the value of what God has given us because we think we just got one talent, one gift. And what you don't understand is the potential of one talent from God when used for his glory. Look at what the text goes on to say. Verse 19, or excuse me, verse 16, it tells us what they did with what God gave them. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money, and he earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. All right, three different things done with the amount of money. Number one, one person invested the idea of investment is it was put into a position where other people who needed starter money or whatever they needed to get things going, they, they gave them that starter money with an interest and a return. It multiplied their money at a great rate. As a result of it, five became five more within some time. The second thing that they did, the, the second servant did is he worked it. He, he literally took it and went to work on it to add to it. The idea isn't just that he invested to get something started. He took it and then began to add to it as his labor was going out because he was a servant of his master's house. And in the absence of his master, he was working still for his master's agenda. One invested it, one worked it, one buried it. What did he do? He, he dug a hole, he threw it in it, he left it there and forgot about it for all intensive purposes. So after a long time, that's what the text says, verse 19, the master returned. Here's the thing. It, it may seem short, but you've been given a great gift. For You don't know how many years you're going to get and when your life's going to end and when you're going to stand before God. But, but you've been given a period of time to honor God, to serve God, to worship God with what you have. And, and my, my point is this. God is not into a get-rich scheme. God's not looking off the principles of this passage, he's not looking for you to promise you'll steward resources in the future better. What God's looking for is you taking what he has given you and you using it in a way that gives him honor and glory. So after a long time, the master returned from his trip and he called them to give an account of how they used his money. The servant whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and he said, master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. And I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, Invest, uh, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew that I harvested crops that I didn't plant and gathered crops that I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money uh, from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. So, so, we, so we get three servants, two have similar outcomes, one has a completely different outcome. And I want you to get the idea of this. This is bigger than money. 
you and I have been left on this earth for a time to serve God's interest. And my concern for many in this room is that you could get your bank account balanced, your debts paid, and you would still be taking time that God has given you to use it for something that will not matter in eternity. I want you to come here with me. You are in perhaps the near future going to stand before Jesus and you are going to give an account for the way in which you use the life that he gave you either in surrender to his worship and glory and honor or in rebellion for your own self-interest and comfort. Now I want you to do an assessment right now of the resources God has given you and I want you to ask yourself on that day will it matter what you are worried about right now what you are giving your life and all of your energy and all of your affection and all of your time and all of your thoughts like like is it going to matter then, because the warning of this text is that there is a moment in history where you will stand before God and you will give an account for how you stewarded what God gave you. And let me be very clear. This text, the first two parts of it in Matthew 25, are specifically dealing not with non-believers, but with believers, with people who profess to be followers of God. And it's a warning about wasting your life in lukewarm living for your own self-comfort and interest in a way that will not matter when Jesus returns. It's about you being found at the return of Christ, not awaiting his return, not serving his name, not living for his kingdom, not being about his kingdom agenda, but about being about your own world's agenda and your own world's focus and your own world's enjoyment. And as a result of it, not having anything to give back to him with what he has given to you. There's not a bag, there's not a crown, there's nothing that they have to give. And I could sit here today and we could balance the book, but my point is some of you today will have great bank statements and terrible life offerings to give to God. And I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about it because I don't want you to waste your time and your life and the resources that he has lavished upon you. Why does the third person have nothing to give but what was already given. Why does he bury it and give it back? Well, there's several reasons listed in the text. Let me run through them with you quickly. Number one, he was afraid. He was afraid. I would call it a fear of commitment. It's a paralysis by analysis, and a lot of you live there. You're so concerned with knowing the will of God before you do anything that you do nothing and actually moving in faith towards what God has called you to do. And there's a, a habit in some church circles where we will talk about the things of God before we ever practice them, at least for a solid decade. I mean, how many of you have children or people that you ask to go and do stuff and they're like, hey, uh, so you tell your kid, hey, go clean your room and you, you come check on them in a few hours and you're like, hey, how's it coming? And they're like, well, we, we got together in the hallway and we had a Bible study about cleaning the room and we discussed how we could go about cleaning the room. We discussed like some tools that we could use for cleaning the room. Like we could grab a vacuum cleaner and some dusting materials. And we, we have talked about a great plan on cleaning the room. Well, have you cleaned your room? We're getting to that. We were thinking about a few weeks of fasting and prayer <laughs> around the subject of cleaning the room. 
And, and this, is, this is my fear, that for some of you, because of a fear of failing in the way or direction of serving and honoring God, you'll do nothing with the time that God has given you, and at the end of it, have nothing to honor God with, with the life that he's allowed you to live. We're so afraid that we're doing nothing. Notice the analysis, the analysis of the third servant of their master. In verse 24, he says, I know you to be a harsh man. Harsh this is how you get there. You're afraid to do or enjoy or steward or invest anything God has given you because you're just afraid that he's just going to be angry no matter how it comes out. And for some of you, this comes from dad wounds because you had a dad that was never pleased. Like the, 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 the marker of his pleasure was always moving. So the second you did what you thought you needed to do so that your dad would be happy and satisfied, the, the marker would move and he would be angry again with you. And, and, and it's like you, the, the game was called you don't win. And for some of you, I think you, you believe that when it comes to your relationship with your heavenly father, that you're in a game called, you don't win. So what, what's the point of going to church? To hear, you stink, you don't win. And every sermon, the, the, the takeaway is, you're a horrible Christian, you don't win. And you leave here discouraged with this unhealthy fear of God that's constantly repeating this message in your head of, you don't win, you're awful, God's not happy, you may barely make it in if you're lucky. And what you don't understand is you've already won. You've already won. In Christ Jesus, the victory has been secured. So now we live in a freedom that recognizes the reverent power and authority of God, but doesn't live in a crippling fear that doesn't allow us to have relationship or honor or pointing to him in service because we might fail or falter along the way. He does nothing because he only knows him to be harsh, and he's not taking the time to know the fact that he is a man of not just justice, but he's a man of great Love. He was afraid to lose, verse 25. I was afraid to lose what he, well, he was afraid to lose what had been given. So as a result of it, in fear, when it came to the things that were of importance to his master, he was afraid, greedy, and or lazy. And when it comes to the spiritual life for a lot of you today, my fear is that for many of you, you're afraid, which has allowed you to walk down the path to becoming lazy which has now allowed you to exchange, since you don't have a real relationship that, with God, a greed that haunts your life and your decision-making and the things that you do. He was afraid, therefore he didn't honor God with the resource he had been given. Number two, he had a distrust that rested in his life. Verse 24, the second part, he says, I know you to be someone that harvests crops that you didn't plant and gather crops that you, uh, you harvest from crops you didn't plant and gather from crops that you didn't sow. The servant's view of the master is not everything belongs to my master, but that my master is going around and taking other people's stuff. Why am I preaching so many weeks about this stuff before we ever talk about giving to the church? Because giving to the church is such an insignificant slice of the pie that everyone gets hung, off, uh, hung up on and we tune out everything else that we hear on. And the reason I'm taking so much time is for many of you, you are missing because your biggest idol is, you know, you're not giving like $5 to the church a week, dear Lord, Lord forbid, you, you, that, that you're missing out on the fact that you're wasting a lot more than just not honoring God with a little bit of giving to your local church. And for a lot of you right now, the, the challenge we have is that at the end of the day, we believe that most of this belongs to me and some of it belongs to God. And, and you've got to flip that if you're ever going to get back to a life that honors God. Everything belongs to God, and he's good enough to bless you with more than you need. 
everything is his. Human beings are weird. I don't know if you've discovered that. I've demonstrated that for you this week on our social media page when I began to sing Celine Dion from the stage. My point is, humans are weird, but if there is a weird of weird, it's called Christian. Christians are some of the weirdest people on earth. And here's why I think Christians are so weird. Consider the fact that for many of you in this room, you trust God with your eternity, but you refuse to trust him with your time. That's weird. I trust you with my eternal, like forever life, but I don't trust that you'll use the time that I have for something that, let, let, me, let me make it more personal just in case we're not there. For many of you, you trust him with your eternity, but you do not trust him with your past. So you still beat yourself up over things and think that you're disqualified because of things in your past that somehow are keeping you from receiving the fullness of life that Christ has for you in this moment. And so instead, you just play the tape of the enemy's worst hits over your life as if it's the current hits that are being played instead of knowing that you've been given the spirit of Christ, Jesus, that, was, that raised him from the dead, that now lives inside of you so that you can be more than a conqueror and you can overcome the challenges that God has given you for his name, glory, and renown. Yet for some of you, you'll trust him with your eternity, but you don't even believe that your past has been paid. That's weird. That's where you, it gets weirder. For many of you, you trust God with your eternity, but you don't trust him with tomorrow. So you're sitting here today worried about tomorrow, and, because, but, but yet, God's got my eternity. He's got it. Really? He's big enough for eternity, but he's not big enough for tomorrow? Let me make it real personal. Many of you trust God with your eternity, but you won't even trust him with your money. I mean, that's weird, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Money's not a problem for him. He resources his people for every good work. I mean, the scriptures teach us that we have everything we need to do, everything that he's called us to do today. Yet, yet for many of us, we're afraid to honor God in a step of faith with a portion of what he's given us. Are you kidding me? But yet we're ready for eternity, for to trust him with eternity. Eternity, forever. Like, like, you, like in the words of squints, forever. But our time, our past, our future, our month, no, 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 no. He distrusts, he fears, so he doesn't have anything to honor God with. Number three, he undervalued the gift, which is what a lot of us are doing in the room today. I don't, I don't have much to give. Have you not read your Bible? The greatest offering perhaps in the history of the world that was ever given was from a widow who had one mite. Greatest offering ever recorded. A widow with one coin who literally said, you know what? I trust you more than anything else and it cost her everything to give it. But, but what you have, your mite is insignificant. I get that you wasted and squandered a lot. I get that there's been a lot of missed opportunity that you could sit around and regret that could handicap you from honoring and living in expectancy that God's going to do something great with your life. But have you forgotten what happens whenever you take your might and you put it in the hand of God? Perhaps this servant saw the two other servants got more and it discouraged him. Perhaps he began to compare himself to everybody else in their journey and he began to die a death of a thousand paper cuts. 
because he began to compare himself instead of steward what God had given to himself. You see, because he didn't understand whose hand the gift came from, he didn't know whose hand to put it back in. He didn't understand that everything belonged to his master to begin with. So whenever his master left, he didn't understand that he was stewarding in his master's town, in his master's business, for his master's kingdom. So he was more worried about his view of the local economy than he was worried about his father and his master's affair. There's a story in the New Testament of a little kid that's in a crowd of people that have wandered off into the desert with no preparations for what they needed to wander off into the desert because they wanted Jesus. And about dinner time, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey, there's a lot of people here. We should probably feed them. Immediately, his disciples broke out into an analysis of what what it would take to feed the crowd that had assembled at their bad preparedness in the desert. Apparently, they needed Yetis back then, and they didn't have a cooler bag to pack a Lunchable. And so now they were stuck. But one little boy had a mama, and you know he had a mama, who had packed a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And they find this little bit of food, and they bring it to Jesus. And what do they do? They put it in his hands. As a result, not only was the entire crowd filled, but there were baskets of leftovers being handed out. Why? Because the fish already belonged to Jesus before it ever was put into the hand of Jesus. And the bread already belonged to Jesus before it was ever put into the hand of Jesus. He was the living bread, and he was the one who created the fish that was in the earth. I never forget, I love watching survival shows. Y'all watch any of those? The ones where they're wearing clothes, not, not the, like we're in church, all right? Like I've only watched one episode of that. It got weird. I was like, this is weird. This is weird. I never forget, they had this uh, survivor show where they were rotating into different scenarios every like two weeks. And so about the time you would acclimate to your surroundings, they would uproot you, put you in another place immediately with, you know, no warning or no time or no idea of where you were going. And you were alone. And the point was, don't go crazy, don't die, and you win money, okay? So uh, I don't know where everybody else stood spiritually, but this one dude apparently took it as, I'm John the Baptist, and I'm on a spiritual retreat to sit out in the wilderness and hang out with Jesus. And what was amazing is this dude would, when he couldn't catch fish in a survival show, and apparently he did this enough, because think about how hard Discovery's probably editing this show to not put it in there. But this guy would go into places where everyone else was tapping, and he wouldn't have food, so he would just start praying. And he would turn a lack of resource into an opportunity to go to his main resource, and he would begin to cry out to God. And I kid you not, because it doesn't always happen this way, but I kid you not, every place he went, he's catching fish where no one's catching fish. And he, he found nuts, like Brazil nuts, in the ground. And I'm like, I didn't think it was in Brazil. He was, it wasn't close. Is that, is that even, do they only grow there? I don't know. But he found nuts, like, and he's just finding food everywhere. And like, he's worshiping God. Like he grabs it, and he's like, thank you, Jesus. And he's and everyone's like, that's weird. And I'm like, nah, it's kind of normal. <laughs> it's kind of the point. Everything came from God. He thanked God for everything that he had. Many of you are undervaluing what God has given you, therefore you don't put it in his hands. Instead, you know what you put in his hands? Promises of future faithfulness. God comes through and has a track record of being faithful to his promise. Therefore, he can give you promises of future faithfulness, and we can trust in it. But I'm just going to go and submit it for you. You don't have a leg to stand on with IOUs to God. God's not looking for you to give him a promise of how you'll steward what he'll give you someday. He's looking at what he's already put in your hand and going, what have you already done with it today? What are you doing with what I've already given you? 
What are you doing with what you already have? He undervalued the gift, therefore he didn't invest it. Number four, and perhaps this is the most difficult one, he had no vision. This is what's scary. When you have no vision for your time, you know what you find? A whole lot of wasted time. When you have no vision for your gifts, you know what you use them for? Yourself, or you end up becoming the tragedy story where everyone goes, man, they had so much potential. How many people with no vision that comes from God have been given so many gifts from God and then become that sad story of they had so much potential? He had no vision. What does he do? He buries it and moves on. And here's what I want you to think about. He buries it, and we're told in verse 19 that after a long time, his master came back. So what did he do the entire time? Because the person only got two, may not in his mind have had an investment strategy, but he at least went to work to add to it. I mean, he, he was determined that if, if, if all he could do was go and work and get one denarii a day, he was going to get enough or something that he could put to it because he wanted to add to what he was giving to God, even if it came at the very sweat of his own brow. So, so he was bent on, on working for God. What's the, 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 the servant with one talent doing? He's buried it, and he's at, at best just lost but at worst, he's actively building his own portfolio with no vision or kingdom idea of what he's doing for the glory of God. He wasn't serving the master's affair. Instead, he had a compartmentalized practice in his relationship with God. In his mind, there was God's stuff, and he had buried it so that God could have it back. And then there was his stuff. This dichotomy has been killing many a believer from a fruitful life, from the opportunity to give a joyful offering when they stand before him. Because for us, there's spiritual things, and then there's the rest of our life. I find no context for that in Scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote, when Christ Jesus, who is your life, is revealed. He wrote, as for me, to live is Christ to live I mean this is what I'm trying to get you to understand Christianity is a 24-7 worship of God his grace his mercy it's an experience of his power it's a moving of your eyes from the things of earth to the things of heaven that are eternal in a way that makes people on earth think that you're being careless with what they think matters. If you don't look careless to the world around you because of your adoration and worship of God, I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned. Like if if you've never had the moment, I've been blessed with, a few of them, where people in the world go, are you okay? That's not normal. The way that you're investing time, the way that you're sacrificing in that relationship, that's, that, that's not, no, like if that's not happening, then are they, is it really about his glory? Is it really by his power? Is it really a stewardship of his purpose in our life for his glory on that last day when we stand before God? Here's what I want you to understand. You have been given something that God intends to be multiplied in your life.
God gives you a seed. And the question is, what have you done with the seed he's given you? Now, I could leave you with do better, and that would not be gospel center. <laughs> Instead, let me end with how you multiply it. You ready? You put it back in his hands. In Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. There's a word in there. I'm looking for it. I'm looking for the whole house to know it. I say it enough to... What is it? How often? I mean, uh, that, that's the thing. You, you don't multiply it because you're like, look what I can do for God. That's Mad TV and Stewie. We don't do that in the kingdom of God. We, by the Holy Spirit, take up our cross daily. We submit to God. We abide in Him. John 15, abide in me and I in you for apart from me you can do. So how do you multiply? You abide. You die to yourself your agenda, to the world's view of you. You, you. you die to those things. Those things have to matter less. You, John 3, 30 to 33, he increases you, decrease. That's the point. It's a slow fade of us becoming more like Jesus and less like the person we were before we met him. Through dependency upon Jesus that allows his fruit to be multiplied in our life. And as a result of it, the work of Jesus is seen and they begin to see Christ in you and they give him glory. I'm all over the text. This is how this works. It, it's not, it is not, hey, go out there and make investments for God and get rich so that you can give him glory. No, it's take what God has given you and put it in his hands and allow him to use it because sometimes his kingdom agenda will cause you to empty out the storehouse for his glory and his name. And people are gonna go, that seems irresponsible. You don't have a blanket anymore. You don't have a security. You don't, in your moment in that is to go, man, my, my security. And the reason we had a storehouse to begin with is because of Jesus. I've been studying prayer. I know I've said I was going to wrap up and I'm doing the preacher thing where I could keep talking. I've been studying prayer and thanksgiving and there was an evening praise that the Jewish people would give God. And it has a word that I cannot remember right now, but it's to essentially say, God, thank you, thank you. And, and, and the, the point is this, thank you for this because that would have been enough. But the praise continues because it's, thank you for this because that would have been enough, but you did this. Think about it. It's like, thank you for food on our table because that would have been enough, but you gave me taste buds to taste and enjoy it. And that would have been enough, but you gave me people around the table to enjoy and conversate with. And, and, and that would have been enough, but there was so much on the table that we still had more to put in the fridge for the next day. And that would have been enough, and it just keeps going because it's acknowledging, hey God, all you had to do was this, but, but you are a God that did more than enough. And, and my encouragement to you, if you are misusing the resources that God has given you, it's not for you to try harder, but for you to surrender it more. God, the earth is yours and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to you. So not a tithe of my time or a tithe of my mind or a tithe of my talent or a tithe of my money or a tithe of my gifts. But God, all of it belongs to you. And since all of it belongs to you, God, I'm coming to you with the freedom of going, teach me to steward it in a way that best honors you. If that makes sense with Dave Ramsey and his plan, then praise God. And if it contradicts it, then praise God. Because the point is that you get glory with the resource that you've given me on earth. I want a house of obedience, not a house 
of people that are just trying to give God the minimum payments so that they can get by with a life that's being lived for their own agenda and purpose. Are you tracking with me? Our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. Can't wait to see you tonight at the community group tour. Uh, let's stand to our feet. Let's sing and respond. You move us to the Lord leads.